Hey everyone, I just want to welcome everyone for our first live episode of Out of the Woods, a cyborg securities threat hunting podcast. We're going to be covering a lot of burning topics, um, some of it relating to threat hunting specifically. Um, but this podcast is going to be a bit different, uh, mainly because we're recording it and it's not just for you, but kind of with you. So we're trying to bring in anyone's comments, thoughts, and things into the podcast as well as as we discuss various topics. Um, and we've launched our very own Discord server for that specific purpose, so you can be fully interactive with us. And with other threat hunters from all over the world, we can all kind of come together and kind of have some thoughts and hopefully good tidbits that are benefit for everybody. Um, so check out the welcome message um, for the link to our Discord invite and head over to the Out of the Woods channel. That's what we'll be monitoring. That's what we'll be looking at. Um, and there'll also be some uh, things that you'll see pop up in there to kind of participate in some polling and stuff like that too. Um, but we'll kick off with some quick introductions. Um, first, I'll introduce myself, um, Scott Poley. Um, obviously work at Cyborg. Um, background, really the best place to see all the things I've done is looking at my LinkedIn profile and you can connect with me there as well. But you know, I'm the kind of person that likes to think of the possible, um, which also kind of leads to my whiteboard addiction if you're, uh, used to working with me or alongside or whatever, I, I end obsessed over ideas and whiteboards. So um, that's kind of who I am. You'll kind of experience more about my background and my thoughts on things as we kind of walk through some of this. So I'll kick it over to Lee to introduce himself. How's it going everyone? Uh, my name is Lee Arknell. I, I started my career as a network uh, admin in the United States Army with Ranger Regiment. Uh, Pulley was actually my team leader. So he taught me a lot of this stuff. Um, got into security through him again and that's where I found my love of logs and sysmon so I'm a sim log junkie um, I try to figure out what the logs are trying to tell me how I can leverage them what's important what's not um, so that's what I obsess over is event IDs and new sources it's a lot of fun Mike yeah hey, I'm Mike Mitchell um, kind of cut my teeth in cyber uh, security as a security engineer at an MSP so I got to see how Kind of the the back end works all the engineering um help manage the service that they provided so i've been on the, the enterprise side and i've also been on the product side uh, as a sales engineer over at Swimlane, um also helping to build a lot of functionality so having an opportunity to build cyborg um, from the ground up was, was exciting to me so more of a more of an engineer than a, than a salesperson at this point but um hopefully i can bring a different take seeing how I've kind of seen both sides of the, the coin. It'll obviously be interesting to see if we all agree with how we think about different topics. So we'll dive Absolutely. into that. Um, also, if everyone, if you're seeing the Discord channel, you see that there's a future cocktail. Um, we're trying to kind of keep this light and fresh. Um, so the cocktail that we have is, is called the Hunter. We'll kind of talk through the ingredients later, but you can check that out. And then if you want to give it a try and leave some feedback, uh, feel free to in our uh, channel. That's what I'm drinking here. Um, it's interesting. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> so the first thing I want to start off with is, is just five headlines, right? You know, typical thing, um, in security, there's always information going around. I'll kind of introduce some of the headline, um, topics or titles or whatever, and then we'll kind of pass it off to different people to kind of introduce them. And we'll talk about some of them. So the five kind of headlines we're looking at is one, uh, Lucas Steeler kind of focusing on the securityweek.com's report of that. Um, the Race Against Time, which is the ZDNet.com, when they talked about uh, victims being scanned within 15 minutes of bug disclosures. Um, Quackbot and CalcEXE from um, HotHardware.com. Uh, another article on Fin7 from the SecurityIntelligence.com. And then the MS Exchange IS based stuff on Bleeping Computer with uh, increasing hacked IS backdoors. So, uh, I think, Mike, you were going to kind of talk through one of the first ones. Let me go off mute. So um, I know Lucas Steeler, and that's an interesting one, and something that we're starting to see now where you have these actors, you have these authors of malware starting to produce their source code and give it away to the broader community, whether that be in a forum, GitHub, um, some sort of release of that code. And it really allows that code to kind of proliferate through our environment, through the security world. Um, other actors and bad actors or, or malware authors can pick that up and manipulate it and tweak it, use that as a base, expand upon it. So we've seen that with quite a few 
you know, different malware strains to date. Um, so one of the interesting things about that and, and something I want to kind of bring up is knowing what I know about programming and coding, it seems like you can glean a lot of information about the source code, the base framework, um, if it isn't manipulated in a, in a wide fashion, but it seems like threat hunters, malware researchers, uh, digital forensics experts with that code base in the wild, if they can get their hands on it, it seems like there's a way that um, you might be able to build, whether it be a hunt or a detection, or at least understand what that core code is doing to protect against it. So in your in y'all's experience, I mean, is that something that y'all had to deal with in the past, especially where you're where you came from and what you used to do, you know, previous to Cyborg? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there. I know one of the biggest things that stood out was the fact that, you know, the shared code, right? That's something like, it's funny because if you go now and look for it, it's already taken down. And, right. you know, so I feel like it's almost like you've got to be kind of paying attention to these things because there's a lot of advantage of pulling this stuff down so that maybe you can emulate it, you know, see how it actually works running live if you want to, or you can see for possible things that would stand out. Um, that that's like a huge asset and especially if you're part of a community and if you have access and you're able to share that out or have those conversations about things you find you know that's also really huge but I remember dealing with information stealer alerts just from like standard AV it was like my least favorite alert and the ones I didn't care about but it seems like they've increased their capabilities right it's not just like let's steal stuff from the browser and let's just fingerprint your machine you know um, so I thought that was interesting an interesting take on that but um, I don't know, Lee, what have you thought about for this one specifically? So it was weird, and I, I like the idea that it was leaked. Um, possibly some security researcher gets out there, can assemble it, and um, you know, really start picking around and see what it really does. And then you can not only build AV detections, but then you can build on the TTPs and behaviors that exist. Um, but two things that stuck out to me, and I am not a programmer, I'm not a coder, that's not what I do. But I have seen going through Intel reports over and over that the Rust language is just starting to come up. Right? And I mean, I know the normal languages that I'm looking at, but I have no idea why that is. Um, I've looked up Rust and seen that it's like easy to use, but I'm really hoping that some of our viewers can like really weigh in on that because I don't know what that means. Um, maybe it'll be easier to write sections or maybe you're easier to disassemble, who knows? Um, but also, whenever something like this happens, I kind of put on my like Intel hat, right? You wonder what happened in the underground that this, you know, what caused this? Was it, um, you know, the like the access broker? Did um, were they burned? So all of a sudden they're like, oh, you know what? You know, you didn't give us our crypto, or you leaked information about us, or you didn't do business with us, so we're gonna leak your source code, um, which is cool because maybe that puts that you know, whoever the actor is or the threat group behind it, a couple steps, or I, and I forget which other malware did this, but they leaked the source code and then they came back with 2.0, um, which could cause like almost like a curtain where the old stuff is now being used by everyone because it's out there and they could kind of hide behind that activity with their newer stuff that, um, you know, maybe not as easy to detect. So, yeah. One of the things when things get leaked, right, it's almost like it's worth paying attention to because you'll likely see it more often just because now it's out there. Now people might find the use for it if they want to. So it's almost you got to kind of put on your radar, even though it might just be an information stealer at this time. But there might be techniques in there that, you know, are shared by all. So, yeah. Yeah. And knowing the, the programming lifecycle and how much work those guys are probably putting in to create that malware, I think, in lead to your point, it being kind of a a curtain that is thrown up over the rest of their production, the next V2, V3, or whatever it is, it kind of distracts from the next thing that's coming out. So that's a, that's a pretty good point to make. Because, um, you know, these guys that are doing this, they're probably having to constantly iterate. So I think what they make a breakthrough in that iteration, they're probably saying, okay, let's just get rid of this. Let's shove that piece of source code and let's give it away and, and confuse the community and let's, you know, go this route next time. So. That's a good point. Cool. So I'll probably break away and look at the next topic, right? The race against time. So, you know, this one's interesting to me because the article is really about, hey, something gets released. 
and then 15 minutes then there's like after the bug's been disclosed there's all this scanning activity and people trying to exploit it and part of me feels like it's that like fear and doom right mentality of reporting because like yeah this stuff happens and i feel like you know uh researchers are looking for the same kind of stuff as well as you know hackers or whatever you want to call them you know adversaries but you know i, I don't know if you guys have ever heard it but i've heard the the trope you know it's patch tuesday exploit thursday where it's just yep. like okay you know like patches come out on tuesday so what do people do they want to figure out what was being patched do some you know diffs on the binaries and figure out what changed so they can write exploits for things that don't get patched right away so i think it's problems sure. kind of always existed um but i think what's made it unique um in this aspect when i dug into some of the actual reporting right you know they broke out where the attacks came from was you know 37 percent still phishing right phishing i get it um kind of the attack from within and then the 31 percent were the software vulnerabilities but when you looked at those software vulnerabilities like most of that was made up of like five major vulnerabilities and the mm -hmm. two of them being proxy shell and log4j and right. it's kind of like the obvious like one like what they give you like proxy cells associated with exchange one it's a huge target people are going to have it and then, then they, they i've seen where exchange has been leveraged so many times that you know take over an environment when it's properly improperly configured um and then you've got log4j where it just existed everywhere people didn't really know it so it was a long lasting hard challenge to solve so it's almost like you really got to have that preparation and know where things are and how things sit to kind of deal with this to begin with and i think that's kind of some of the message there from my perspective is you know how are you positioning yourself right and is this an issue with so is the the vendor finding this vulnerability and then a lot of times it's a researcher finding the mm -hmm. vulnerability in the platform so it, and this is interesting to me. So, like, you have the F5, the big, big IP vulnerability recently. Um, log for shells was a little different because that was a kind of a backend module that was, you know, included in Apache. But any of these vendor type of vulnerabilities and exploits, I, you know, I feel like there should be some sort of private communication with their customer base to say, look, this is a problem. We need to patch this. If they can find it first before the researcher comes out with it, because Ultimately, the security is a problem for everybody, right? It's the customers, it's the the user base. Um, it affects a wide amount of people. So it's, you know, it, it's like a bank saying, yeah, there's a problem with our bank vault or our back door uh, to, the, to the bank and letting everybody know that rather than just letting the people who run the bank or the, the customers who are using the bank software know first so they can, you know, fix their problem before the rest of the world knows about it. So, you know, I, I feel like there should be some sort of private communication, you know, first notice to the customers and the users that are using the software before it becomes a, a wider base. And that's just an issue with, you know, uh, researchers, journalism, you know, they want to get the news out first. They want to be kind of the clickbait. Um, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. So uh, I think that's where you get, get into problems with some of these, these vulnerabilities and exploits. They always want to name a CVE. Yep, exactly. It always makes you wonder, though, like, with all these bug bounty programs, I mean, like, they're doing a great job. And like I said, that's not my line of work, so I'm always impressed with people work on uh, doing that. Um, but you wonder, you know, what are, the, what are the organizations doing? What are the um, the vendors doing to help do that in, internally? I know we can't find everything, but, you know, you kind of hope that your internal guys are doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, which is like no knock against them. That's way above and beyond me. So I applaud their work and it's important. Sure. Um, but one of my biggest, um, I think, takeaways from this or from this article was what organi organizations can do. Um, and it's the the old good luck keeping your database of your assets up to date, keeping that fully detailed, knowing exactly what's on every computer, where that computer is what software what services um you know that's that's a pain for any organization um but that would probably be the best way around this is that as soon as that patch comes out you can get 100 percent coverage um but you know we do our best say i don't know if you guys have you guys heard of virtual patching so something that I think benefits some of these cases, right? Where if you have like a WAF, a web application firewall or reverse proxy sitting in front of these, you know, that gives you the advantage to 
possibly look at that exploit code and see what is actually being thrown. So you might be able to build, you know, certain preventions based off of that to kind of protect yourself in these circumstances. Cause something comes out quick, especially when it gets publicized, you know, exploit code gets out, you expect it to be used pretty quickly. You know, that's an opportunity where you can kind of protect yourself temporarily, right? Before getting that patch. Um, and something that hopefully you can test quickly enough to where it's not going to impact production as well. So, absolutely. And I mean, and looking at the Discord, what a pain asked about master key. And I think this lines up directly with what we're talking about, right? I mean, this is a, I mean, a lot of people use Palo Alto. Um, I don't know how this was communicated to the, the, the overall security community, but looking at this exploit, I just popped it up on my screen. Um, you know, it, it'll be fun to run and see what we get back. So, I'm sure Caridan will have this baked in eventually, right? Um, and, you know, so. Cool. So, Appreciate Lee, I think. We'll... But what a pain. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, Lee, I don't know if you want to take over the next one. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, Quackbot, um, doing, what, doing what it does. Um, so, yeah, basically, the, um, the article really details out the um, the attack chain, which is great. Um, they did a really good job um, when doing that. Um, and what, what that leads into is, and what I do at Cyborg is basically I look at these articles, I look at those attack chains, and I say, all right, you know, where are the opportunities um, to capture that activity and hunt for? Um, and really, you know, when it comes down to it, and the attack chain could be really long, but there's going to be behaviors that the actors um, exit or um, show, and it's going to be, how do I say this? It's going to be all over the place, but they're going to be consistent because they're humans. The way they type commands out, um, the spelling mistakes that might be there, um, and this is the tough part. So finding those opportunities to detect uh, is really important. And I feel like that's where we really shine, and that's what we do here. Um, but if you go into um, Hunter, uh, our Hunter platform, with what we're looking at and what we've already created um, is actually a hunt package collection on uh, Quackbot. Now, if you're looking at my screen, you'll see a bunch of stuff is uh, trial lock because that's, you know, I have a community package. Um, but we've crafted these hunt packages to find those certain points in time where we can detect them between the major events, um, like from initial compromise to ransomware actually being detonated. There's all those steps that the attacker has to take in between, and we're doing our best to create these hunt packages that'll capture all that activity. Um, and you know we've mapped to the MITRE attack matrix, so which always helps with finding out you know what stage is the attacker possibly in, um, but. What I want to show is, you know, one of the um, one of the packages that Quackbot or has been associated with Quackbot activity, uh, and that's suspicious scheduled tasks be, uh, being created, where the encoded PowerShell payload is executed from the registry. Um, this we have found in articles open source. Um, then we dive in, just like the article that you see um, detail in the Quackbot and calc.exe, and we pick it apart and what we try to do is operationalize it. And I think that's the toughest task that a SOC analyst or a um, you know cyber uh, threat intel guy or a threat hunter, um, that's the hardest part. Gathering information is easy, but what do we do with it next is really where um, we shine and where we help uh, everyone out. Um, so really what you get with this hunt package is not only can you see what tools that we support currently, um, but really, we give you the overview of what we're looking at. And if you need a quick description, say, hey, what are we looking for? You know, malicious PowerShell activity, it's listed. Um, we see, you know, scheduled task command is executed to create a uh, task utilizing PowerShell to execute Base64. Gives you a quick um, description of it. Um, also, we have a query logic table that if you do have a tool that we are currently not supporting, um, we give you the logic behind it. We provide the fields that are necessary um, to capture this activity, and we give you the values as well, and also the condition. Um, so any of the scheduled tasks created, any of these, and some of these values, um, that will help you detect the 
the activity that we're talking about, uh, specifically the PowerShell and registry. We also provide you with some analyst notes and threat description. Um, basically, this is giving you some background information about you know, previous attacks or things that the adversary is known for. We also provide the reference. So if you want to learn more about where we got this from, you can jump in and grab the, um, grab the URL and go look at yourself. And one, not only can you learn a lot more, but you can almost verify that what we're doing is either correct or close, or maybe you have a better idea of how to do it. And, um, but we would like to give you the source more as, you know, we try to stay away from being a black box. So, um, we, Lee, there was a, a quick question. Someone was talking about where they, they actively pick up IOCs as they happen, and they use that okay. for some of the hunt stuff, um, flag those. You know, what, what's kind of our approach and, and why we think that's important to do, but why we do what we do? Can you speak to that a little bit? When you Are we talking about hashes and IPs and file names and stuff like that? I'm guessing like a multitude of IOCs associated, yeah. Okay, so um, what I like to do and what I consider the threat hunting methodology um, is we try to stay away from, or I should say we don't create hunt packages based off of specific file names, specific hashes, um, or IOCs like that. Now, what we do is we try to find um, values that are consistent um, in a way that either using regex or um, we know that it's always in the same place, like stored in a registry key. Um, but when it comes to those IOCs, it's really important because if you look at the, D, uh, the deeper report and you find a bunch of hashes, the first thing you can do is gather those up, put them into a list, search on them in your environment and say, are we already found? Because if you are, you have a great resource and Intel report to look back at and see, all right, so what can we go from, or where can we go from there? I like to call that the, the police blotter, right? You got yeah. that, here's everything you look back on, right? See if I was part of those reports. Yeah. Right, um, but then after that, if zero results come up, you don't wanna say case closed, we're good. That's when you wanna start jumping into the TTPs. That's where you wanna examine behaviors, look for command line arguments being thrown, uh, thrown registry keys being manipulated, all these things that you can find that, that aren't specific context, but more of like surrounding ideas. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I think it sounded good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sounded good. Logic, <laughs> it's the honor. Um, so, but we also map to the MITRE tag majors. Um, once again, for ease, um, to kind of give you an idea of where you're at, and if you use the MITRE tag matrix, you can kind of figure out like if they're in execution mode or if they're in you know C2, what steps come next. Drink break. Drink break. The Drink hunter. Like the hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by the hunter. Um, then we also provide um, some response actions. The analyst runbook kind of says, how can you identify a true positive? You know, because we're giving you all this information. We're going to give you the query. We're going to give you um, an emulation package, or yeah, an emulation package, which I'll get to in a second. But what does a true positive look like? And then the mitigation recommendations are, you know, what what next steps can you take during the hunt to really start gathering more information, really start building those relationships between activities um, that can give you a bigger picture? Because that's what threat hunting is really about: building relationships, giving, um, you know getting as much information as you can on the attack and then handing it off to, you know, the IR team or the SOC team. And if you are one of those analysts or professionals out there that you're doing it all, Godspeed, I guess. Um, but that's tough. Um, but so back to the content. Now, if we jump in, what we can take a look at is, you know, what, is, what does it really look like? What does the query look like? You can see that in Splunk, we map to multiple log sources. We got Sysmon, we got EDR, we got WinEvent logs. Um, but really, it's, the difference is the fields. Um, so whatever log source exists in your environment, we kind of give you options to use. Now, if you, um, if you have Atomic Red Team in your environment, that's great. You can download this validation package and run it, and it'll provide the logs that are needed for the query to work. And then you can detect the activity. And then 
based on you know if it's a hunt or a behavior and the hunt being more of the wider net you're kind of like i have this hypothesis i'm going to throw it out i'm going to see what data i get back i'm going to slowly churn through and weed uh you know false positives out um or a behavior which is like this is really specific to this one attacker um you know you get a lot less false positives back and more true positives but basically what we do is we provide you a manual operation and a automated operation. And this kind of serves two purposes. One, once again, it gives you an, a, a you know, moment to say, hey, what they created actually detected um, the anomalous activity. And we're going to run with this hunt in our environment and look for actual um, malicious behavior. Two, it could really validate that you have the log visibility in your environment, which is really important. Um, because my favorite. It, what was that? That's my favorite. Oh yeah, because and it's actually like as a developer, I'm like, yeah, find bad, find bad. And one of you know, someone said that, and I was like, I didn't even think about that business use case. So you know, if you are blind, you could pitch to whoever you need and say, we need these logs ingested, or we need to start auditing these logs. Um, because and here's why. We're looking for this threat specifically and we're blind to it. Um, which is great. Now, but then we finally have the deployment requirements. These are anything that um, does a registry key auditing need to turn on? Does process command line auditing need to turn on? Any configuration change that you need to make in your environment, um, we'll throw it here. Um, also, we say, you know, if it is behavior, we'll say you might want to run this over this amount of time, for this many minutes, um, just different ways to run it. Um, but yeah. That's what we do. And as a developer, I'm super proud of it. I hope so you all. It's funny, you know, like we, we have all those different packages, but even just looking at that um, article, first thing that stood out to me right away was the CMD with the argument slash Q slash C. And I was like, okay, anything running from command prompt in the quiet argument and then throwing a command, I'm like, those are things I like to dig out anyway. So. But it's it's just like that, like taking something that simple and we turn it into something that, that can be that full fledged and then you get enough of them. So it's kind of cool. And and I know there are some really good analysts out there and good professionals that they know this. Um, but growing up, or I always say this, and it's not just because I work here. Um, but my first four years as a SOC analyst was rough. If I <laughs> I was trying to figure out log sources, I was trying to figure out what am I even doing? Like how do you get tool and not even it wasn't even security mindset it was what am i doing <laughs> and if i had this to like help guide me i probably would have been um in a probably a better sock analyst um probably wouldn't be here though so i'm kind of glad it didn't exist when i was <laughs> uh, but no this is i love it and i'm really really proud of the work we did mike do you have any comments before we jump to the next next topic or are you good no i mean that was a great walk through and and i think just going back to the question I was asked about the indicators of compromise. I mean, we always talk about behaviors and TTPs, but the thing that, you know, over the hundred of conversations that we've had over the past couple of years is the IOCs do a really good job of blocking and tackling, right? Um, I know they're ephemeral and they change often, but we're seeing organizations use that threat intelligence to guide to the hunt. So you can either use the hunt as a, a proactive approach to finding the bad in your environment, or you can use it as a reactive. Right? So if an IOC fires, there's an alert, you can still hunt. You're still hunting for the bad thing. You're probably just now having to shift your focus and you're a little bit more targeted because you know there's already an instance of that bad thing in your environment. Right. So That's a good point. I like that. Like you kind of cover like what footprint does the adversary have if we know they're here? Exactly. Because that's what the IR team is going to do eventually. Right. So if you can get ahead of that and give them a report to say, look, it's these machines, these networks, because we're already have done the hunt process. It makes their lives a little bit easier. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to jump to the next one. So the you know, next one's really just talking about Fin7 and really them switching to use ransomware. And I, I kind of thought this was almost to be expected, right? Like if anyone knows anything about Fin7, they're like a, a, a criminal type, you know, org as far as how they operate. I believe they operate out of Russia, but they're highly financially motivated, right? So anything that can turn money quick and, and, and make it easy, like that's that's kind of where their target set seems to lie. So it just seemed like such a natural transition to say, well, everyone's making money with ransomware, you know, why wouldn't we, they have the skills. Um, 
but the really interesting thing is if you actually dig into the fin seven stuff you know they're really heavy use on powershell um and and you know and like even i think their their back door they call it power plant um but you know something i always think is interesting discussion when you think of like malicious use of powershell and some organizations like well we need to lock down powershell and, and stop it from being used everywhere and you know in some cases yeah that might make an adversary act differently but the one thing i like about powershell is you can enable a lot of visibility to powershell as well so it's almost like if you force them to use something that you're more blind to um it might be better to have hey we have really good detections and capabilities to utilize powershell to find these things and use it to your advantage um so there's that but even when i was looking i dug even deeper because like mandian had a report they were referencing um and you know they've been using the same command line structures to go back three years right and like it's almost and then when you know the, the example they threw in there was like they use cmd with slash c to basically start powershell with the path to powershell a bunch of arguments and then they run a powershell script and it's like nice. you know that's pretty distinct right you know it, it, you know you got to wonder like in your environment administrators how often do they do that type of thing and that's kind of what we look for right is yeah. Hey, they have a behavior that might stand out different from your administrators, even if they use PowerShell, um, that you can really start to kind of fingerprint their behaviors. Um, so it seems like they have a lot of those. And so anyone that's really interested in digging into Fin7, that recent port of Mandate, if you basically Google Fin7 and Mandate, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, they have some really good antidote types things and um, and comments about different PowerShell things you could potentially look for. So I'd definitely look into that. I don't know what you guys took away from that. Well, it's important to remember that the actors and the authors of the malware, they're human too. They will stick with what they know. They'll stick with what's comfortable. And they'll make the same mistake over and over um, just because that's what they know. Um, but, you know, getting into the, um, you know, being tricked by, you know, cybersecurity work, I mean, we know how it is when someone says, hey, yeah, I really like what you did. Um, why don't you come work for us? You know, it's the flattery of getting recognized and being, you know, idolized as one of the best in your uh, in your community is always nice. Um, and what it draws back to is what I thought was um, like Project Raven has talked to uh, talked about on Dark and Diary, where there is a bunch of people that were lured by you know, hey, you're the best of the best, your resume is great. Um, you know, here's a ton of money, come do this work. And once they get there, you know, it's the bait and switch. They're, they're like, well, you know what, you were gonna do this, but now you're here, so you're gonna do this. Um, you gotta feel for them because they think they're taking the next step in, you know, their career when really they're doing like damage beyond it. Yeah, and it, the only comment I have is, Lee, I think you said this earlier, um, humans form habits, right? And it's hard to break those habits sometimes. And once you have a game plan and you're successful with that game plan, they're just playing the numbers at this point. So if they can affect a percentage of the people they're going after with the same thing, they might get caught a couple times, but if they can be successful with what they're doing, it's hard for them to, it's hard to get that pressure for them to change up what they're doing today. So. And that goes back to hunting for the behaviors, you know, uh, looking at what the, almost trying to figure out what the human's doing, right? Kind of social engineering, what that person's going to do in that environment, in that space, that access. So um, that's a really good point, Scott and, and Lee, on that piece. Yeah, when you talk about creatures of habit, I always think of the analogy that it just pops in my head every time. I don't know, I was going to talk to this at some point, some other place, and so now it's just stuck with me, but it's like, for people that drive to work now, and I guess no one drives to work anymore, but you know, like you drive to work, you take the same route every time, right? When you talk about creatures yeah. of habit. And then even if there was a detour, you're still gonna drive the car the same. You're probably gonna go the same speed limit. You go 10 miles over, five miles or whatever you do. Like there's all these unique things that people just do because they're people. And mm -hmm. and so that, that directly applies to the cyber realm as far as like, I mean, even when I think about how I use my computer at home, I do the same stuff all the time in the same yeah. way. Like when I want to run, if I want to open up, um, for instance, the calculator, I don't find the app. I do the Windows run key and type calc. That's how I yes. run and execute it every time. Yep. Yep. Cortana. Oh, you use Cortana? 
You're like the only one that uses Cortana Lee. This year. Voice recognition? (laughs) You just need someone to talk to. I get it. I get it. I'm only Cortana. All right, so like the last article here that we've we've listed before we jump into some topics, Lee, I think you were going to talk through. I got a lot of stuff to hit on this, so go for it. Good. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you have it. And Mike, I was looking at you because the engineering side, I think. I have very little experience with this, um, so I was hoping that you can enlighten me as well. Um, but Bleeping Computer uh, highlighted an article about um, Microsoft Exchange servers uh, being increasingly attacked by backdoors. Um, so what does that mean? What is a what does a server look like? You know, how when building these up, is it easy to make mistakes or is this just really good um, threat actors? So from the engineering perspective, knowing what it takes to deploy an on-prem exchange server, um, you know, there's a lot of experts out there. It's a it's a it's it's a tough thing to do. It's, it's miserable to have to maintain over time, update, manage, um, at least from my experience, and I know probably most of the engineers out there, like Google's your best friend. So you're gonna use those guides, you're gonna use those resources online to stand those up. And this kind of gets into the next topic we're gonna talk about, but you have an operation side and you have a security side. So when that manager or the, the, the CTO or whoever says, look, we need to stand up an exchange server, we have to do it by next month, there's gonna be a speed in which you have to get that up where you might cut some corners, right? Um, but there's always security around deploying these things, uh, loading the modules, loading the ISS modules. There's a best practice around it. And again, we're human, not everybody uses the best practice, right? So um, Scott, I know you had a bunch to talk about with this. I'm sure I'll, I'll slide in. Yeah, so one- On to the next topic. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> thanks, Lee. Um, yeah, no, the the big thing I liked about this was when you think of um, any web server being owned, whatever you want to call it, it's all about web shells, right? And then it's, you know, the reverse web shell or the web shell. And those things looking for, you can kind of look for where connections are, are originating, right? Something is originating from inside going out, kind of obvious when it's a web server or when you have those really long standing connections. So there's kind of typical ways where you can look at some of that stuff. But with the IIS stuff, you're kind of installing a module that is kind of a passive backdoor, right? Mm-hmm. So someone just needs to craft the, the how they're going to talk to over HTTP or whatever. And then the in the pipeline, how it's being processed, it's actually going to pick up on any keywords or things. I bet, you know, they have different ways to do it. Like they can be like a certain regex pattern that matches something that they pass. So then it knows to talk to the backdoor, not to just pass it on or um, custom headers, tokens, or hash values, or whatever you want to put in there. The different ways to do that, but you know, that makes it really hard from a C2 perspective, because that means anything can be a C2. You really just have to talk to the web server the right way, um, yeah. which makes it really interesting. But you know, some of the other interesting things um, I think about that are, you know, if you were able um, to put uh, you know, the reverse proxy um, in front of something like this, and then put your network monitoring in between, you know, you can handle all your encryption on the front end and you can see things decrypted. And one of the things that happens a lot is they use encrypted C2. So now if you're looking at all the HTTP, you know, it's already, you know, in plain text between your proxy and your, you know, exchange server, if there's still encrypted traffic, you know, that's really suspicious, right? So there's different ways where I think you can pick up on some of these things. And then another thing they use that I thought was interesting was they try to um, prevent um, logging to happen on a local server and how they achieve this is making huge cookies because the cookie gets too big then it doesn't log it locally well if you were to do some sort of batch comparison you might be able to like i haven't tested any of this so you know this is just theory right <laughs> but like it, maybe you can take something where if you took all the source ad- source addressing connections that show up in the log and compare it to your network monitor and you say hey these are the addresses that don't have logs in our local logs might be interesting to look right. at Right. Yeah. And so, you know, different ways to kind of pull those things out. And I think that's like that um, data or hunting mentality, right? You're taking that problem, trying to break it down into pieces on where you might be able to have the visibility because the first problem you got to solve. Right. And this one sure. seems like that's a hard point. But second, like, how can you start sifting through and make interesting things stand out? Right. So um, that's that's something that when I was digging into this, I was, just, I was fascinated by it because I don't dig into this stuff that often. Um, I hate exchange servers. So, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. You caught up, Lee? Did that help? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Go, good to go. Right, cool. Yeah, so you got yeah. the next like four or five packages we publish on that, right? Yeah. <laughs> got it. Just got your phone number in it. Yeah, so it looks like, I mean, we have about 20 minutes left, and, and Scott, I know we're done with the articles now, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I think as we move this thing forward, we have some some higher level topics that we want to talk about um, outside of just the articles. So one of the things that we're going to approach today, and we kind of touched on it earlier, was we have business operations versus security. So this is something that every IT admin, every security analyst and security engineer, anybody that's ever worked in the enterprise has probably had to deal with, right? There's a speed in which business operations need to get stood up. Um, that's typically associated with the profit or the revenue or the operations and SLAs of a company. But then you have the security side, the compliance, the risk, um, that a lot of times those typically don't go hand in hand. So over the past, we're seeing IT admins, IT engineers starting to, and a lot of that, that path is they transition into the security role because they're already getting hammered with it as they're building up these, these business operations internally. So, you know, there's the, the scale side, don't break anything, right? Don't change anything, but we still have to have security. Um, and so I've had a, a unique experience coming from a managed service provider where we own the engineering side, but we are a security company. So everything we did was security first, right? We were selling a security product. We had to be secure. If we would have gotten hacked, as a managed service provider, that we, as we've seen in the wild in, in today's space, it causes a lot of problems. So we had to be buttoned up on what we did from an engineering and IT perspective. But there are other organizations that aren't security focused that are delivering a product that is outside of the security realm. So I know Scott and Lee all come from interesting backgrounds. So I kind of want to tee that up. Like how have y'all had to deal with that from an analyst perspective or, you know, Scott, I know you built out, you know, socks before, right? So that all kind of gets pushed down, uh, you know, down the hill. Yeah. Um, gosh, like the, the hardest problem is one, trying to change your visibility and being, you know, agile with that, where things you need change or configuration changes on operational type equipment. And it's Correct. just like that, that, that testing life cycle to push, push and shove that happens there. You know, it's, it's a relationship you definitely need to have a good relationship with those people that manage everything um and you also the the testing life cycle to be able to push changes through needs to be very streamlined and efficient because you know there's nothing worse than it's like oh we have this really good change we'll get it to you in three months it's like <laughs> right. okay I mean, that's cool we're accepting the risk for three months then that's basically what you're telling me and as long right. as someone signs off on that i mean that's the security folks hey if someone wants to sign it go for it but we yeah. got to make sure to communicate that correctly um, but I've also seen, so I, I've, I've helped, I've participated and helped with the, I don't know if anyone's heard of the cyber shield exercise, the national guard does. It's a really cool exercise. If anyone ha ever has an opportunity to participate or get their companies involved with that, I fully recommend it. Uh, we did for a few years. Um, but that's a great example too, where the exercise national guards coming in, have their scenario. They're going to basically help a private industry with some sort of hacking incident group apt whatever it is and that security mindset of hey we're getting attacked we need to respond and harden something you know you can see how not understanding the business processes that can get in the way and how often that has broken something like making changes without authorization or trying to block something you think hey well this is an easy avenue it's like well yeah you can't block email though right like you know some things that we would say is obvious but in those types of exercises you know that stuff stands out and it's and it was kind of a a good way to add light to, yeah, we want to do things quick and fast and security want to respond, but, you know, I saw where it can break things very quickly too. So, you know, uh, it, you got to kind of understand the balance between the two. So, so yeah, do you, but do you think, thing is agility. Do you think, yeah. Do you think having security minded management would help? Right. And I know, you know, we've seen in a while where budgets always aren't aligned with business operations when it comes to security. And I think this goes into a whole other conversation around uh, risk and security insurance, cybersecurity insurance. And there seems to be an offloading of risk to, if something happens, we'll just get paid out for it, right? Yeah. Like we're covering our butt on the insurance side, but you know, it, it seems so, to your point, if you can sign off and be like, look, this is your risk and push it up the chain, 
you know, it's not on you anymore. You've, you've identified the problem, you've communicated it, right. and now it's that upper level decision whether or not they do it. Well, I definitely feel like security people should never be the ones that sign for the risk. It's definitely got to be the business. So yep. always push it that way. But, you know, um, the other thing is, is it's, I've always thought of security is not so much what technologies you deploy, right? It's really people and process. Yep. So when it comes to how you're going to address, you know, how flexible, agile, what you want to change in the environment, whatever, you just have to have really robust processes that aren't overly complex, right? Sure. Like it should be easy. It should be easy if you want to change something to be able to test it. That that should just be a no-brainer. And then yeah. the test should determine whether or not you do it or not, right? But if it if it takes too long and you're backlogged on that, don't have the right resources of the tech, that's where I think where people hurt themselves the most. Um, mm -hmm. Because once you make it, you know, everyone's ever, if you ever manage an IPS, once it blocks something, it hurts the business it's now an ids mode permanently you know it's never going to go back to preventing it's always just going to be in detection mode and that's just that's just the the culture we live in because security really isn't adding value you know to the over underlying product depending on what the business is right but sure. um, it's a cost so you got to balance Absolutely. that and then what happens if you break something right so i know lee has some experience with that you want to talk about <laughs> so no yeah so First, I guess my personal uh, experience is, like I said, I was in the army with Poli, and one of our jobs was to um, provide network connectivity in remote places. So we had to know how to get that network up and running. That was it. Like we had other teams that would deal with security, with you know whatever measures that they put in place. Our job was to get it going. Now we were trained to that point. Um, Whereas like, hey, you know, I can get this network up in, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, I have all my commands in a binder. I know what to do. Um, so, you know, and if not, I'm doing push-ups or more importantly, um, if I'm in Afghanistan at the time, you know, lives could be on the line. If it's a, if it's a live feed coming in that they need, um, there's no wiggle room for downtime. Um, so that was my first six years was I need to get this up and running no matter what. If I threw in a faulty command or I redirected traffic, um, I kind of was none the wiser um, because we had people to look for that stuff. Uh, but you know, that, that type of perspective was different. You know, now when I came into security, it was like, all right, I need to know how things work, not only how they work, but how they work properly. Um, sure. I can't tell you how many times I called people like, hey, this is acting funny. Yeah, it's always acting like that. Click. Okay, right. That's not good. <laughs> um, right, right, right. But I will say I did, um, I deployed something in an environment. Um, it, it was Syswan logging and it had a, a memory leak to it. And it mm. took down, it took down some computers and in a call station like where it calls needed to be get in. Cause, but I didn't know. I was, you know, we tested it on a small batch. We tested it, tested it, tested it. We were moving smoothly. Whenever we put out updates, it worked. Um, but then, you know, the memory just leaked so much that it started crashing stuff. And that was it. They were like, what all right. What was the difference between your test environment and that production environment? Was it a big difference? I mean, a lot of times you get into the issues where, again, perspective, a company's so not going to give you a replication of a production environment, right? You're going to get maybe a couple boxes. So I think, I can't remember if we did mix, um, or I can't remember the specifics. But what it came down to was that Every time you change the configuration in Sysmon, um, and yeah, you know, so I'm trying to recall, but I know that changing it over and over and over and over caused this memory leak to grow larger and larger and larger. And because well, we were testing, because we were pushing, that leak just kept getting bigger and finally. Got it. Well, I think it was also it was the OS specific. It was old OS that wasn't being tested as part of the test group properly, yeah. if I remember correctly. So it comes back to, what did I do? And that happens. Like, <laughs> the bigger the organ, the bigger the organization, and the more that's there, it's like you know, accounting for every possible edge case scenario um, is challenging. Yeah. Um, but you know, like I said, processes, good processes lead to hopefully better things. Yeah. 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 And I, I see a lot of more organizations taking a dev ops mindset, where you have a dev test stage production environment, hopefully. Um, especially when you get into larger orgs and, and you need to really test and 
especially from a logging perspective, right? Um, visibility is, is hard to gain in a lot of these tools. And so you need to be able to test that at scale. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's I, think, uh, I, think, I think people are learning. Um, just trial and trial and fire, right? But yeah, it was um, it was rough to move forward because every time you said syslon, people were like, "No, no." We're That's not an amazing that. tool. It's 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 oh, crucial yeah. for visibility. Right? It's amazing for right? detection. It was the it was the tool and log source that I found that drove my career this way. Um, yeah. It was the JP cert. All they did was they took a bunch of uh, Windows native. Um, they put in a report, they took all the Windows native programs and ran them and were just like, these are the logs we saw. And I was like, what is Syslon? What is this thing that keeps popping up? Didn't you and print that out? What? Didn't you print out the JP cert? I did, because I took it home and I was just like. <laughs> it was like your Bible, like you literally carried it with them everywhere. I love that. And like anytime yeah. anyone had a question, I was like. <laughs> but no, yeah. it was, that's what drove me here. It was, it's amazing. It's awesome. Hey, you think we can sneak in one more before the uh, the ten minute mark? I guess we have ten minutes left. Um, yeah. Which one? What do you want to talk on? So you want to see, just jump, you want to jump in the security model stuff? I'd be going in on. All right, Lee, take it away. All right. So we all know of the security models of the days of old. We got MITRE. We got the um, cyber kill chain from Lockheed Martin. Um, and others, the diamond model. Now, there's not one specific model that I've found that like hits it on the head 100%. So I guess from your from your perspectives, what are your favorites? What do they bring to the table? And where do you see like, you know, can you combine any models to say this would be perfect? So I'll dive in to some of my perspectives. I mean, Kill Chain was great when it came out because it was like the first thing to really scope everything, right? But it was also kind of how security was back kind of when it came out. I guess it was kind of in a transition phase where it was very perimeter focused. Like get through the perimeter, bad things happen. That's kind of the Kill Chain. Here's the initial this, that's bad thing happens. And it's like, that's not how attackers really work. It's it's like circular, right? They can like iterate through that. So the Kill Chain's still applicable and it's great for you know if you need to explain things up it's simple you can walk through it i think it's great for management not to insult any management um i was i was a management um so so that's kind of my take on the kill chain um so i feel like it's dated you know it needs it needs you know i guess uh, uh whatever they call it when they make over yeah there we go um <laughs> miter Miter's miter is great. I love miter. It's used in a lot of places. It it also really helps with um, you know, some metric based stuff, right? If you want to see like your coverage, your detection capabilities, there's a great breakout there. The only problem I really have with miter is it's it's like a retro look of things that have happened, but doesn't necessarily help for things that haven't happened. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of like that. You know, here's things that we can at least account for, which means they're valid. But you know, it it does. You can't just say, "Oh, we can cover all miter. We're good," right? So yeah. you know, but it does it the details and especially the way they put all the resources together. I mean, I use it all the time, so I, I can't complain. So I do I do favor that a lot. Um, the diamond model, diamond model is really cool, but I really feel like it's really just built for Intel people, right? I mean, it was designed by Intel people um, because it really focuses on adversaries' capabilities. And then the victimology standpoint, like, okay, this is what they can do. These are what their motives are. So who would their potential victims be? And so it really lets you dial that in. So like, if I'm an Intel person and I want to say, hey, this is a bad entity, who should I worry about them going after? I can say that now with the diamond model, but it doesn't really solve me as an organization other than saying, hey, we're in the crosshairs, but it's pretty easy to say, oh, it's a ransomware actor and we have money. Well, okay. Diamond model didn't have to get, I didn't have to put that together and stitch it together to say some of those things. Um, yep. And then time-based, this is something I've kind of learned about more recently and I won't go into the super detail here, but I kind of liked it, but it's really hard, I think, to apply sometimes because the idea is whatever preventive controls you have, you're measuring those versus your detection and remediation time. So like detection and remediation has to be um, 
greater than your prevention otherwise you're not your prevention controls aren't really good but like if you if you want to look into like the whole book about it if you just google what they're saying about time-based security it's a really really cool um way to look at some problems and you can like really sit here like if i got a phishing email and i have to get to get through all these avenues and pivots to get to something critical assets you can kind of model that numerically with the time-based model because you can measure how fast can we detect this how fast can we respond to this and it's really about your mediation time so you can kind of come up with your exposure right that's the point like how much are we exposed from start to finish is it two hours of exposure when this happens you know that kind of thing so it's kind of cool but i would say i would lean towards miter because it's it's up and coming more and new and it has a lot of great resources the other ones kind of just frame things like there's no resources if you look up diamond model it's not going to tell you or, or kill chain it's not going to give you as many hey, here, pivot to this article or pivot to this, like you can't build much from it other than just an understanding, so. The amount of context the MITRE ATT&CK framework brings yeah. in, well, is remarkable. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, I was gonna say, I think, and you were talking about kind of the age of these frameworks, and I love a framework, right? Anything you can standardize is amazing. So I believe, I don't know which was first, the kill chain or the diamond model, but I think what they tried to do was, uh, simplify the conversation when you're talking outside of the group that's doing the work. So you said Intel uses the diamond model. They're trying to simplify those stages so other people can kind of understand what they're what they're framing and the problem that they're framing. Um, Killchain does the same thing. I know it's huge in the government space when we were doing again at the MSP, we had a lot of government clients that love to key in on the kill chain and that was very early before MITRE came out with their framework. And MITRE has been kind of a game changer, right? Because it it frames the conversation in a way that people can understand the threat and the things that you're trying to actually solve for, but it also gives you a way to operationalize it. And I think that's the biggest thing that I think people use MITRE for is they're saying, okay, this, this technique number does these things. This is what I need to look for. Now let's go operationalize that. Let's actually go, you know, look for actors that do this thing, this behavior, this tactic and technique. And it's a really interesting framework. Um, Love it. We use all three, actually. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, is it one or is it two or is it three? I think if you combine them, you get a deeper story on that intelligence and that context. Um, and then recently, I mean, MITRE has been updating every like three months, so it's fun to keep up with. I'd be really curious on what version most of the enterprises are using today, um, because it is hard to establish a framework and then have to update that in three months. And update that in six months and update that in another six months right so to follow that along causes some engineering headaches but it, it's all you know it's it's moving into a place that you cannot operationalize these these tactics and one of the things again shameless plug that i've seen is that people say okay look there's a technique call it command line uh scripting and in a dfi report it says this actor does command line scripting or whatever technique they're going to call out. The problem with that is, is that there's probably a hundred methods of that particular technique that they don't drill into. So it's very important not to only look at that technique or tactic, but also contextualize it with what that malware, that actor, that threat's doing, because there's a hundred different ways to do a bunch of different things, right? So That's probably my biggest frustration with some government-based reporting is when they give like a list of MITRE techniques, I'm like, oh, that's really cool because mm -hmm. I know kind of what they do, but how are they doing it? You know, like, exactly. like okay, I, I, can, I can monitor this, what I think it is all day long, and then I'm still stuck maybe missing it, and then it's, you know, it's yeah. me, so. So I want to make one, minute, one more comment before we go, um, but this was from What a Pain talking about um, different uh, PowerShell log sources. So there's PowerShell operational, there's PowerShell script block logging. If you do have command line auditing enabled, if you're ever looking for the get item, new item, set item, and you're wondering why you can't find that in the command line, it's because that's in the PowerShell script block logging. Um, that's where you can find out what was in PowerShell scripts. Um, you can find out a lot of more information based off of PS1 files. Great source, and I agree. Um, you should probably turn that on and start ingesting them. They're great. I think it also, if something is obfuscated or or encrypted, I think it shows it after that. So you actually get more of the clear of what that is too, which is kind of cool. Very noisy though, watch out. <laughs> so coming up on that last minute or so, one of the things we want to cover is if you haven't tried the Hunter, um, 
you can scroll up in the chat. Um, I'll cover it. The ingredients are really one and a half ounce of mezcal, three quarters ounce uh, lime juice, uh, half ounce of agave nectar or honey. I used agave nectar. I haven't tried it with honey. And then you fill the rest with ginger beer and then top with a lemon twist. Something I added to mine was I had habanero salt um, on the rim. My lips have been tingling the whole time, so I've been trying to work through this with like a tingly. Yeah, luckily I'm able to talk still. Um, you think a live podcast was hard enough? Yeah. So I mean, it was pretty good. I'll I'll give it. You know, if we did a scale out of ten, I I might give it a seven or a six somewhere in there. But yeah, it's new to me. I've never had mezcal, so. But, and then the next um, one we're doing the uh, the DNS DDoS daiquiri, right? Is that what it is? <laughs> yes, it's the DDoS daiquiri, the next recipe we're going to do. So I might I participate. I'm allergic to mezcal, so I've just been drinking straight whiskey. It's been great. Um, so <laughs> next time I'll try to I'll try to participate. All right. I just want to thank everyone for participating. We enjoyed having the conversations, and I think this kind of ends the first podcast feedback's great so we can make this better and make it what you guys want yep yeah thank you all love the input um keep it coming